0: Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith
1: Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the
0: Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books and Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. For many people, Cambodia's modern history is overshadowed by the devastation and horror of the Khmer Rouge era between 1975 and 1979, yet arguably the period since the fall of the Khmer Rouge has been much more significant in shaping the Cambodia of today. Despite the international community's best efforts since the early 1990s to fashion Cambodia into a modern liberal democracy, Hun Sen and the Cambodian People's Party have eliminated pretty much all opposition to create a highly authoritarian state. Yet at the same time, despite huge disparities in wealth, Cambodia is arguably more stable and prosperous than at any time in its traumatic modern history. Sebastian Strangio has documented this remarkable story in his book, Cambodia, From Pol Pot to Hun Sen and Beyond. Sebastian Strangio is Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat, the premier international current affairs magazine for the Asia-Pacific region, a former editor at the Phnom Penh Post, Cambodia's newspaper of record, and a leading journalist on Southeast Asian affairs. Sebastian, thanks so much for coming on our new books in Southeast Asian studies. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Now, this book is a revised and updated version of an early work published in 2014, Hun Sen's Cambodia. The earlier version appeared in the days before uh, new books in Southeast Asian study podcast channel was set up, but the book has won so much praise from scholars and analysts who work on Cambodia that we're so happy to feature the revised and updated version. Can I start off by asking you to tell us about how you became involved in following Cambodian affairs?
1: Well, I think my interest arose from a confluence of my my interest in the history of Indochina. I got, became very interested in the Vietnam War, and while well, I was at university and started doing a lot of reading on it. And also my my interest in journalism, my interest in becoming a journalist and pursuing, yeah, pursuing that line of work. Um, and that led me to, you know, seek out opportunities. And, you know, it quickly became clear to me that Cambodia, you know, for some reasons, which we might want to discuss further in the interview, there were opportunities to to sort of be a journalist in Cambodia that weren't available, for instance, in Vietnam, which is, you know, very tightly controlled by the, you know, the Communist Party. Cambodia had two very good English language newspapers, the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post, at, the, at least at the time, that offered young journalists like myself the opportunity to, you know, to jump right into reporting some, you know, really fascinating stuff. We, you know, we were able to, you know, write about Corruption and the sort of issues that would be front page news in in your average Western country, but you know, were sort of a, a you know, daily occurrence in Cambodia. And so, I I kind of came to Cambodia with a certain amount of book knowledge, I suppose you would say. But my interest in journalism is what drove me to actually move to the country because of the opportunities that existed for to sort of build a journalism journalistic career in, in the country. And so, I worked at the Phnom Penh Post for three years, and you know, really th- that especially that first 3 years really deepened my curiosity in this country's history and yeah i sort of really wanted the opportunity to explore in more depth the the, the complex interactions between sort of cambodian domestic politics and international constituencies and d- like donor governments and, and international financial institutions and and so forth and so my my interest in cambodia flowed from that and that that was that sort of provided the the impetus for me to write this book.
0: So, let's get on to the book. What motivated you to write it and what are you basically trying to do in the book?
1: Well, I always it always struck me while I was in Cambodia that there really wasn't a good book on contemporary Cambodia that teased out the, you know, the, the complex relationship that Cambodia and, and the very fraught relationship in some ways that Cambodia had to the sort of international sphere that, and, you know, the country's evolution over the past 3 decades you know, within that sphere. There was some very good academic work on Cambodia. I was particularly influenced by Caroline Hughes' work on the political economy of Cambodia's transition from one party communist rule in the 1980s to this sort of internationally shepherded, pluralistic democratic path that Cambodia embarked on um, at the end of the Cold War. But in in terms of something for a, a general readership, there really wasn't anything out there and, and I felt that there were complexities and, and sort of layers to this story that were very hard to tell in the context of a 1200 word article. And, you know, luckily enough, I was, well, I was luckily enough to get the opportunity to pitch a book to Yale about contemporary Cambodia. And that sort of is where things, where things started. And then I spent about two years researching it, drew on a lot of the reporting I'd done while I was at the Phnom Penh Post. And the the initial book came out in late 2014.
0: The book Briefly covers the French colonial period, independence under King Sihanouk and the Khmer Rouge period, but your focus is on the period since the early 1980s following the Vietnamese invasion and occupation of Cambodia. Why is this period so important for your book? Well, I think the 1980s, particularly, are
1: key to understanding both Prime Minister Hun Sen and the Cambodian People's Party. You know, this is a period in which Hun Sen takes part in the liberation of Cambodia from Khmer Rouge rule. He takes part in the overthrow of one of the 20th century's most brutal dictatorships, but then, due to the exigencies of Cold War realpolitik, his regime, or the People's Republic of Kampuchea, backed by the Vietnamese and the Soviet Union, is considered, you know, becomes an international pariah state because of um, which side of the Cold War divide this new Cambodian government finds itself on. It's subject to punishing embargoes by the United States, by China. Um, very interestingly, you know, th- then, of course, working strategic partners and uh, the anti-communist nations of ASEAN. And so you sort of have, you know, the CPP leadership, including Hun Sen, coming of age in an era in which, uh, an era of great Western hypocrisy, you know, where the the, the needs of, the Col- of Cold War superpower competition led the US and other Western governments to support the Khmer Rouge as the legitimate rulers of Cambodia for 11 years after their overthrow in 1979. And also to prevent humanitarian aid from flowing to the government in Phnom Penh. And so, you know, the lesson I think that Hun Sen draws from this period is that, you know, Western proclamations about democratic values and human rights are always yoked to a broader strategic objective, that these are flags of convenience for hard power interests. And so, you know, this has, I mean, it also inculcates deep mistrust of the United States and other Western countries. It's important to recognize that Hun Sen also probably personally experienced the carpet bombing of eastern Cambodia in the 1960s and 70s as a youngster and you know this experience pushed him to join the, the anti-government insurgency of the time the communist insurgency which later fell under the influence of Pol Pot and this more radical faction of Cambodian communists and which of course he defected from in 1977 but Hun Sen you know has experienced personally you know some of the worst the, the darkest chapters of American engagement in Cambodia. And so, when you know, by the time the end of the Cold War comes around, you know, Hun Sen is, has very little reason to give Western nations the benefit of the doubt about their intentions to democratize Cambodia.
0: The book, it's a modern history of Cambodia, but it's also a political portrait of this remarkable figure of Hun Sen it's, of course, easy to caricature Hun Sen as an authoritarian, strong man with no interest in democracy or human rights, which is not not wrong. But reading your book, I came away with the impression that this man is a political genius. Can, can you tell us about his background and how he eventually came to power in the 1980s? Well, Hun Sen
1: is born in uh, the early 1950s in Kampong Cham province, which was was. Uh, you know, he he grew up in a rice farming, tobacco farming family on the banks, in a village on the banks of the Mekong River. He is not a leader who came from wealth or privilege. I think he was relatively privileged in the context of his village. His family were, you know, were among the the better off. But, you know, he's, and and so that enabled him to, it opened the door for him to have a, you know, high school education in Phnom Penh, which is something that, you know, a lot of other youngsters in his village probably would not have been able to do. But, you know, Hun Sen comes of age in a, in a turbulent era. You know, this is a period in which there is sort of a political tension and conflict brewing across Cambodia that, you know, by the time he sort of comes of age in the 1960s has exploded into, you know, to open civil war, really a, a sort of backwash from the war in, next door in Vietnam. By the time Hun Sen reaches his teens, the U.S. government has begun bombing intensively the eastern parts of Cambodia in order to prevent Viet Cong infiltration or the Viet Cong use of Cambodian territory. He personally experiences these bombings and joins the insurgency because he joins at such a young age. Um, and the exact year that Hun Sen joined the communists is, is a matter of some dispute. This is a highly sensitive political question, of course, because of what the Khmer Rouge later became. And so Sen has, has always emphasized that he joined after the coup of 1970, which overthrew Prince Nardom Sihanouk. And that because, of course, Sihanouk issued a call for people to come and join the insurgency after he was overthrown. And Hansen claims that he was heeding the prince's call. But there is significant evidence that he joined and was active in the, you know the insurgency you know, several years before that, which is something that politically is difficult to explain now, but you know Sen again is you know he comes of age really in a, a period of extreme upheaval. he grows up as a young man on the battlefield. his morality is the morality of the battlefield it conditions him to Produces a you know sort of ruthless approach to politics. In 1979, when he participates, well, first he 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 defects in 1977 after witnessing the the horrors of the Khmer Rouge and potentially falling victim to its purges. In nineteen seven late nineteen seventy-eight and early nineteen seventy nine, takes part in the Vietnamese invasion aimed at overthrowing the Khmer Rouge. At that point, he's appointed foreign minister at the age of 26. You know, he's, he's incredibly shunted into an incredibly important position at a very young age. And through the 1980s, one of the qualities Hun Sen, that, that leads to Hun Sen's rapid ascent is, you know, he's willing to do things to advance the interests of, of Vietnam, which is occupying Cambodia at the time. You know, he's very good at communicating Vietnam's position on the conflict in Cambodia. To an international audience, he's willing to do Vietnam's bidding in terms of you know sensitive border treaties and so forth that, that the Vietnamese engineer during this period. When of course the Cambodian government is is closely controlled by Vietnamese advisors, and the Vietnamese military is essentially fighting the you know a civil war on behalf of the, the communist government in Phnom Penh, and so. This is a period that produces, you know, a leader who is intensely pragmatic, flexible enough to, to bend with the wind, I suppose, to bend with the, the changing political winds. And you see this very clearly at the end of the 1980s when Cambodia, uh, kept all the you know the various warring Cambodian factions moved towards some sort of peace settlement that paves the way for the UN to come to the country and begin a transition to from the country from a communist one-party rule to a multi-party party democracy, Hun Sen is very canny at sort of changing his stripes and and re-adapting to the new situation he finds himself in. This combination of ruthlessness and flexibility is really the hallmark of Hun Sen's long career.
0: You raised uh, just then the issue of Vietnam, and of course, one of the abiding themes of Cambodia's modern history, arguably going back three centuries or more, let's say, is the problematic relationship with Vietnam. Hun Sen comes to power in the 1980s in the government backed by the Vietnamese occupation. How important has Vietnam's backing been to Hun Sen and his party, the Cambodian People's Party?
1: Well, it was obviously crucial in the 1980s. I mean, the, the Khmer People's Revolutionary Party, as it was until 1989, was a creation of the Vietnamese Communist Party. It, we, Vietnamese advisors were posted to every ministry there was a large vietnamese occupation force that helped to defend the regime against the three resistance factions as they were called backed by the chinese government and by the us and by other western countries and so vietnam gives hun sen it puts hun sen into a position of power for the first time and it entrusts him to look after its interests after the end of the cold war you know cambodia goes from being sort of a vietnamese client state to a ward of the, you know, quote unquote, international community, it becomes a, an international project. And the country is open to a range of international forces, you know, m- you know Western aid money flows into the country. And, and Vietnam's influence, you know, is moderated by this opening, it doesn't disappear. I mean, Vietnam continues to play an important role in, uh, you know, that the personal relationships that were established during the 1980s persist, but that it, it's no longer accurate to describe Cambodia as a client state of Vietnam, once you get to the mid 1990s. And I think that what we've seen, you know, that, that's a that's a time, of course, that marks the beginning of the rehabilitation of Cambodia's relationship with China, which of course you know has a very um a troubled relationship, shall we say, with the Vietnamese. And so you see increasingly Vietnamese influence being complemented and counterbalanced by a closer relationship with Beijing. So of course, today there are there continue to be very close relationships in certain realms. That in the de- in the realm of defense, Vietnam and Cambodia remain very close. Cross border relationships are are very important for the two countries. But you know, on on the sort of national level, you see China making great inroads. You know, huge infrastructure loans, large amounts of investment and in trade that you know, and then really, really the sorts of money that the Vietnamese can't compete with. But yeah, so Vietnam's influence is definitely not what it was. But it, there's still you know an important historical connection there.
0: Perhaps I should also ask, how important is anti-Vietnamese sentiment to Hun Sen's political opposition in Cambodia, particularly since the 1990s?
1: Well, the 1980s, as, as you, you point out, you know, Cambodia is invaded by it, what many people see, view as its historical enemy. So you have this paradoxical situation in which the liberation from the Khmer Rouge is also framed by many of the opponents of the new regime, new Vietnam-backed regime in Phnom Penh, as an occupation and sort of... You know, and so you see, you know, opposition figures like Sam Rainsy, Prince, uh, the late Prince Ranarit, who passed away just a a month or two ago. You know, these leaders during that period mobilize anti-Vietnamese tropes against the government in Phnom Penh and are encouraged to do so sort of in the context of the Cold War as well. This sort of um, xenophobic anti-Vietnamese nationalism becomes the stock and trade of a lot of these groups while they are in active insurgency against the Vietnam-backed government. By the time the UN comes and sort of initiates a transition to multi-party democracy, what you have is that, you know, these resistance factions converting themselves into political parties and these anti-Vietnamese tropes sort of continuing. So resistance to Hun Sen and the CPP has always contained a very strong strain of anti-Vietnamese nationalism, which, you know, has created a certain friction with the liberal and democratic ideals that many of Hun Sen's opponents often proclaim. Figures like Sam Rainsy, who's um, Western educated, speaks fluent French, and spent much of his life in France, is able to shift registers very, as, as easily as he shifts between Khmer and French and English, from sort of a you know a, a political language rooted in liberal values and human rights to one that focuses on you know historic the historic animosities toward Vietnam and fears that Vietnam is sort of eternally preoccupied with how to consume more of Cambodia's territory so, you know, it's, it's even up to the present, the opposition to Hun Sen expresses itself in predominantly in nationalist terms. In
0: 1993, the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, or UNTAC, organises elections and surprisingly, the royalist Funsenpek party under King Sinok's son, Prince Norodom Ranarit, actually wins more seats than Hun Sen's CPP. What was Ranarit's background and why did Funsenpek do so well in that election?
1: Well, I mean the short answer is that they benefited from the prestige of Ranarid's father, Prince Norodom Sihanouk, who returned to Cambodia in 1991 after, you know, 14 years of, of exile and was later became king uh, under the reconstituted royal government of Cambodia after the departure of the UN. Ranarid was, you know, studied law in France. He was a law professor in Aix-en-Provence. Um, Like many of the members of the Funsenpek party, which was the sort of, I guess the represented, you know, the remnants of Sihanouk's old regime from the 1950s and 60s and represented that ideological current, I suppose. He went to the border after the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge in 79 and became a resistance leader. And later, you know, due to in large part due to his father's prestige and the you know the amazing magnetism that Sihanouk had on the Cambodian people, he is is elected in 1993 as prime minister of the country, or at least he wins the first election. In some ways, it was a surprising victory because the CPP had controlled all of the organs of the state. Uh, All of its coercive capacity, even though the UN was technically in charge of a lot of government ministries, the CPP was able to exercise a lot of sub-Rosa intimidation in order to ensure that it was duly elected. But in another way, it's unsurprising. I mean, you know, Sihanouk was an incredibly magnetic figure whose absence from the country many Cambodians saw as... Sort of one of the reasons that the country slipped into the abyss under the Khmer Rouge, and that Sihanouk's overthrow in 1970, and Sihanouk's own telling, and those of his apologists, was really the moment that put Cambodia on the um, on a path to hell. And and, and the genuine affection that Sihanouk had for the people of the country, uh, even if it could be a little bit paternalistic, was something that drew a lot of people towards him. And so, you know, in some ways, it's unsurprising that Sihanouk's son, who was you know a spitting image of his father in, in many respects, right down to his high-pitched voice and francophone pretensions, would or francophile pretensions, I should say, it's no surprise that he would be elected. I think a lot of Cambodians were voting for a return to what many saw as the sort of lost golden age of the 50s and 60s when Sihanouk was in charge. And, 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 and for a brief moment, Cambodia's future seemed bright.
0: In your book, Hun Sen's July 1997 coup against Phun Sen Peck's leader and Cambodia's co prime minister at the time, Prince Ranareet, is a turning point in Cambodia's politics. How so?
1: Well, it marks really one of the final decisive blows of the Cambodian Civil War that began in 1979. It is the culmination of a, 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 you know, a rivalry between Well, I should go back to 1993. So the 1993 election happens, Funstenpäck wins a majority, but it needs two thirds. It needs two thirds of the seats in parliament in order to form government. And so Hun Sen and the CPP stage a, you know, they, they claim election fraud and they stage a secession of the eastern provinces of the country in protest. And this, through the use of force majeure, basically, they're able to push Sen Peck to accept, basically, to grant the CPP an equal share of ministerial posts and and, and so forth within the new government. So they they force themselves into a coalition government with the royalists, um, which involves Ranarit serving as first prime minister and Hun Sen serving as second prime minister. And then each of the each of the ministries divided up in complicated ways to, to represent both the CPP and Funsenpeck. The problem that the Funsenpec people faced is that you know, the CPP had pre-existing political networks that dated back to 1979. I mean, this was an incumbent party. They had the loyalty of the civil service. They had patronage connections that that linked the, you know, the village level all the way up to the national level. And so through by mobilizing these patronage networks and these pre-existing government and party structures... The CPP was able to effectively go around a lot of the Funsunpek people who were became ministers and, and civil servants during that time. And the I mean, the Funsunpek party just simply didn't have the personnel to staff all of these ministries with their own people. And so what you had was the slow erosion of si of um, Ranarit's power within the government and increasing confrontations, frustration on Ranarit's part about being sidelined by his coalition partner and increasing tensions between them. The, F- the funsen party still retained its own armed wing that was loyal to the party, as did Hun Sen and his people. And essentially what happens in, with the coming of the UN mission is that in the signing of the Paris Peace Agreements in 1991 is the conversion of a long-running civil war between the CPP and the other three resistance factions, one of which was funsen and you con- a conversion of that into the political arena. And so what we see in July 1997 9- is... Hun Sen striking preemptively against funsen Peck's armed wing in order to forestall them, forestall the enlisting of Khmer Rouge defectors, because of course the Khmer Rouge are entering the, the you know the terminal phase of of their decline by 1997, you know into funsen Peck's ranks, and so the, the fear that Hun Sen and his some of his associates had was that if if these Khmer Rouge defectors many of them hardened soldiers, joined with the royalists, they could pose a threat. And so really, it was the final blow of the final decisive blow of the Civil War. There was a peace plan drawn up after after the coup, there was a peace plan drawn up by the Japanese that, under which Ranarid, who fled the country, was able to return. And there was elections were held in 1998 as scheduled. But those elections taking place against the backdrop of the 97 fighting, basically, you know, Hun Sen won you know decisively and became sole prime minister and so you know th- that really marks the end of Funsenpak as a significant political force just as July 1997 marked its end as a significant military force and of course the you know the final end of the of the civil war comes with the defeat of the Khmer Rouge you know in late 1998 and this this is the sort of so-called win-win policy that uh, of defections and military offensives that is now so sort of lionized in the official cpp historiography.
0: A really important related theme that you develop in the book is the decline of the monarchy. And of course this is a massive turning point in any country's history. In Cambodia as you said King Sihanouk had dominated Cambodian politics really since independence. But since the 1980s and particularly the 1990s Hun Sen really outsmarted him and by the end of the 1990s even before Sihanouk abdicated you show that the monarchy was a declining force in Cambodian politics.
1: Right, I think that you know it's very hard to separate out the the sort of respect and uh, that the monarchy enjoyed through the second half of the 20th century in Cambodia from the person of Sihanouk. Very similar way to you know the domination of Thailand's king Bumibon, or the longevity of Bumibon in Thailand has created a situation where the monarchy is so closely associated with him that what well, potentially poses some challenges to the Thai monarchy under the current king. It's there was a similar sense in Cambodia that that after Sihanouk's abdication in 2004 that the the prestige of the monarchy sort of faded. The CPP also made Hun Sen particularly was very Canny at co-opting the the monarchy as sort of a as part of his political strategy, he was able to depict himself as sort of a defender of the monarchy and its legacy and its honor, while also arguing that under the constitutional democracy that Cambodia supposedly became in 1993, that Sihanouk could not play an active political role, and he was technically right. The king under Cambodia's constitution reigns but does not rule. And so Hun Sen was able to enclose Sihanouk in a constitutional straitjacket. Um, I think the fact that Hun Sen and and his party con- had you know enjoyed a virtual, especially after nineteen ninety seven, enjoyed a monopoly on you know on coercive instruments of the state also ensured that that Sihanouk really, aside from his prestige and his sort of magnetic personality, didn't really have a lot to work with. And he was also getting on in years as well. I think that the In many ways, he was, Hansen was energetic. Youthful um, and had the the ruthlessness and will to prevail, and I think that Sihanouk, you know, by by sort of the early two thousands, he's you know spending a lot of time out of the country. He's he's plagued by health problems, and I think that eventually he gives up the fight. And probably, you know, in order to preserve the monarchy, there was always this sort of th- you know looming threat that Hun Sen might decide to sort of pull the trigger and introduce a, re- a republic, and so he was basically out you know, sort of outmaneuvered by a younger, more determined, and more powerful opponent.
0: As Hun Sen consolidates his power and the Cambodian monarchy loses influence, as you've described, uh, you write that Hun Sen started to present himself almost as a royal figure. He encourages this fascinating personality cult in which he depicts himself as as the reincarnation of a 16th century Cambodian king. Can you tell us about this cult and maybe Maybe also the extent to which it reflects a continuity in Cambodian political culture. We always hear about the discontinuities of the Khmer Rouge and you know French colonial rule, et cetera. But here, it's almost like a, a a continuity that we see.
1: That's right. it is it's sort of the question that looms behind a lot of the discussions about Cambodia's democratization after the end of the Cold War, about you know how quickly can a country leap forward to consolidated liberal democracy. And I think what we see instead is a great deal of continuity especially given, you know, the, the impact that the Khmer Rouge has on the very idea of social change, right? I mean, it, it, this the, the population that emerges from the sort of the cataclysm of the Khmer Rouge era is, is intensely conservative. I liken it to you're survivors of a shipwreck sort of clinging to, you know, the flotsam that whatever flotsam they're able to. And, and I think what you see after the end of the Khmer Rouge is this mass flight, into tradition and to the embrace of the, you know, the the rhythms of the Buddhist calendar, the rituals of the Wat. And, you know, the CBP is really able to harness this politically to sort of position itself as a sort of the guardian of, well, firstly, the bringer of stability and peace. And then later on, after the end of the Cold War, sort of the guardian of Buddhism and of the monarchy and of those sort of conservative, quote-unquote, Khmer values so the Khan narrative comes about sort of in the early two thousands when Hun Sen begins to make increasing references to the the life of this sixteenth century Cambodian king about whom very little is really known. Um, he's sort of a semi mythical figure who he's a um, basically an ordinary villager who rises rises up to become Cambodian king for you know I think for fifteen or twenty years before being brutally overthrown by the the former monarch and. You know, since my book was published, you know, the references to this icon narrative have sort of faded a little bit. There's a sense that Hun Sen is sort of stepping away from this. But I think the fact that he embraces this myth and sort of, promotes it to such an extent and, and and that, you know, sycophantic people around Hun Sen promote it to such an extent is, is is offers some interesting insights into how he views himself. There's a period in the early 2000s when all these statues start going up of this king and, and they, all of them bear faces that look very, very, bear a lot of resemblance to Hun Sen's own face. And so I think that this is sort of a, you know, he's trying to establish or people around him are trying to establish this sort of Historical precedent for a commoner to become king and and to sort of overthrow the uh, illegitimate I suppose or unjust royal king or monarch, and so I think that this off it does parallel on very rough terms sort of Hun Sen's ousting of Prince Ranarid in 1997 um, or or his defeat of Prince Ranarid in 1997 and his eclipse of of his father Sihanouk sort of by the middle of the first decade of the 2000s, and and I think that that's. I think it does suggest a certain amount of continuity. I mean, it's, it's it's a you know it's a it's a complex thing to to get one's head around, given the impact that the Khmer Rouge had on and in, in, in how disruptive that was in Cambodia. But it does seem that there the ways that power are power is communicated in Cambodian political culture and you know, and sort of signaled to ordinary people, it seems like there are, you know, a great deal of continuities, you know, the the model of kingship that existed back in the Angkorian period of sort of these god kings who were beyond reasonable challenge, certainly has some echoes in the way that Hun Sen goes about governing Cambodia today. I, you know, I'm always hesitant to push these parallels too far because the country has also changed immensely since, you know, the, the, the the beginning of the French colonial period. But I think it is, it's also important not to emphasize the extent to which there are continuities in culture, social, you know, traditions of social hierarchy and other sort of, you know, almost in some ways nebulous sort of concepts that, that have underpinned and, and and in some sense strengthened Hun Sen's hold on power.
0: After... UNTAC comes in and organises elections in Cambodia. You write about the influx of uh, of NGOs, and your book is quite critical uh, of the aid industry in Cambodia. In one place, I think you call it A New White Man's Burden. Uh, But you show how the Hun Sen government is pretty adept at taking advantage of of what you might call the naivety of some of these NGOs. For all the, the billions of dollars that aid agencies have poured into the country, what do they have to show for it?
1: Well, I mean, it is an interesting question. I mean, there's so, but but it's in some ways a hard one to answer because there's so many different NGOs engaged in Cambodia on, on, on so many different projects in so many different areas. I mean, I think, I think there was a certain naivety about the potential for Cambodia to be democratized quickly. Um, I think that well, it's one thing that I really try to emphasize is the extent to which you know Hun Sen's career intersects with a global sea change at the end of the Cold War. I mean, this is sort of the period that Fukuyama referred to as the end of history, where, you know, liberal democracy, human rights, and free market capitalism became kind of the, you know, the only model open to other countries. And Cambodia was a place where this optimism was present in, in particularly undiluted form. I mean, there was, you know, I think you, you had this, this in, incredibly deep sense of Cambodia's, the tragedy of Cambodian history, of Cambodia being a victim And that is sort of converted and flipped on its head into this optimism and this great sense of mission about bringing democracy and human rights to Cambodia. I think one of the problems that you have is that while many people in the West sort of interpreted the end of the Cold War as representing this sort of ideological shift, within Cambodia, the the break was not nearly as total. I mean, you had an incumbent government that saw in the UN peacekeeping mission and this democratizing energy, a threat to its hold on power and that the peace settlement which created the UN mission essentially asked the CPP to give up control of the country. It controlled a 90% plus of Cambodia's territory, had spent 12 years sort of reconstructing the country after the ravages of the Khmer Rouge, and it really had the most to lose from any sort of political settlement that welcomed in its former enemies. And so predictably, they resisted. Um, and I think that the sort of the hard-nosed practicality and ruthless determination of Hun Sen collides headlong into the the over-optimistic, almost naive expectations about Cambodia's, you know, democratic potential in the early 1990s. And this collision sort of is a slow motion collision that unfolds over the the subsequent years. And Hun Sen becomes very canny at adapting himself to this new argot of sort of good governance and, and accountability and human rights, just as his opponents do. You know, and I think that one important continuity is the way in which Cambodian leaders have very cleverly repurposed and redirected foreign energies and resources in pursuit of their own domestic goals. And you see this on, on the opposition side with Sam Rainsy beginning to kind of echo the good governance World Bank speak and, and to talk about human rights. And then you also see it on, on the side, you know, the Cambodian the Cambodian government, a lot of its leading ministers become very adept at sort of dealing with international donors, speaking this language and making all of these sort of far-reaching promises about reform. And so, you know, most of the, a lot, I mean, it's very hard to generalize. And I think if I was to rewrite the book now, I'd probably try to, you know, hedge a little bit more or qualify my argument in that, in the chapter on aid, because I do think there is a lot of diversity across the sector. But I think that, you know, a lot of, the, the government is very determined to channel all of this these aid efforts and this international developmental energy into non-political spheres you know they they want to create a, a, you know a firm separation between between you know development projects whether they whether that's sort of environmental issues or you know yeah forestry protection or human rights advocacy or sort of democracy promotion they they want to direct that all into they they want to say to ngos basically we don't mind what you do here but you can't get involved with politics. Now of course development is an inherently political process. So this sort of forces a lot of the NGO complex in Cambodia, you know, down this narrow corridor in, you know in which it can't really it has to sort of dance around the a lot of the sensitive political questions in order to avoid offending the government. And that's especially the case with the UN agencies and somewhat understandably given that they rely on the government's consent in order to be stationed in the country and there's a sort of Constant dance around the Cambodian government sensitivities, but the government essentially attempts to, yeah, to foreclose any sort of potential for this NGO complex to become a political actor in Cambodia in an important way, as of course the Cambodian opposition is seeking to bring about. And the result is that you know there is they are able to capitalize on quite a lot of well-meaning but also naive Western expectations about Cambodia. A lot of. NGO leaders and workers, you know, are liable, they have institutional reasons, you know, as well as personal ones for taking the government at at its word when it says that it's committed to reform, and so forth. And so, I mean, it's interesting that things have actually changed quite a bit since I wrote the book, because there has been this sort of decisive turn towards an authoritarian system. And the tolerance that the government once extended to foreigners, um, granting foreigners visas to to stay in the country long term and to the activities of NGOs have, have sort of They've in many ways been swept aside. And a lot of the red red lines of the government and the restrictions that are in place are a lot more explicit than they were when I was there, when they were more kind of subtle and, and unspoken.
0: You mentioned a minute ago, these confident predictions of the end of history and how countries would develop into liberal democracies. And Cambodia is kind of a, a, a hopeful case. But the second half of your book is taken up with how Hun Sen and the CPP neutralize or eliminate Pretty much every significant source of opposition in the country, whether it's the you know, the Buddhist establishment, whether it's the, the nascent union movement, or whether it's one area where you have a lot of experience, that the media. Mm. Can you tell us how he how he did this?
1: Well, it's been a sort of slow and piecemeal process. I mean, at the start of the nineteen nineties, when the UN comes in, it wrenches open. Cambodian politics to all manner of outside influences. You see as you as we've discussed you know this this influx of development aid and you know hundreds if not thousands of aid work western or 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 foreign aid workers the kickstarting of dozens if not hundreds of development and aid projects in the country and also the return and this we alluded to this as well before of generation, several generations of Cambodian exiles. So a lot of the royalists who, who you know, once were clustered around the, the legacies of Sihanouk's government in the 50s and 60s, returned to the country. You have Buddhist leaders from abroad returning to the country. Uh, you, you know, all of a sudden, sort of the Khmer global diaspora that sort of scattered abroad during the country's years of civil war, and, and then during and after the Khmer Rouge, you have this sort of return, This this... Sudden political pluralism that exists in the country. You have, it's during the UNTAC mission that the Phnom Penh Post and the Cambodia Daily are both founded. And all of a sudden, you know, all of these forces pose either an explicit, in the case of opposition political parties, or an implicit threat to the hold of the CPP on power. And so securing the CPP's power is about gradually harmonizing all of these spheres of society with its broader interests and subsuming them within the CPP's sort of like tangled vine of patronage connections. And so, I mean, it happens very slowly. And, you know, the government finds a certain amount of profit in maintaining a sphere of openness within Cambodia. Now, that sphere of openness is both geographically concentrated in the capital Phnom Penh and probably several other provincial capitals, but it's also limited Conceptually, to, for instance, they they permit the existence of a hard-hitting English language press run by foreigners, or owned by foreigners, and and a lot of foreign involvement, such as the Phnom Penh Post that I worked at. But one of the reasons they permit this is that you know the the, the readership of this newspaper and the Cambodia Daily, you know, is limited by limited to the Cambodians who can read English. The distribution of hard copies of the newspapers. And of course, the Cambodia Daily didn't have a website until 2012. And so the limited distribution of these papers to a handful of provincial capitals you know, also limited the reach, their reach. And so the government saw no downside to permitting these things to exist. I think they viewed it as an indulgence. And they might have found it frustrating that these papers were constantly reporting on government corruption, but they really didn't ever... They never posed an actual challenge to the government's hold on power. And as soon as they did start to pose that Challenge, you know, they or or as soon as the government felt that it could close them down with without you know Western backlash, it did so, and that happened in the Prompt and Post was sold in 2018 to CBP friendly owners, and the Cambodia Daily was forced to close in 2017. And so so yeah, for many years there was a certain tolerance; foreigners could stay, could get year long business visas in Cambodia without any questions asked about employment status or or income. You know, it was an incredibly liberal place. So it was very easy to work there, but very hard to actually, as, as aid workers I interviewed for the book emphasize, a very hard place to actually get things done. And and this, you know, I'm sort of peeling back these layers could often take people who were stationed to the country, you know, several years to kind of get their heads around. And then, of course, there'd be a new deployment of staff and they'd have to start that process again. This is one of the things that sort of has helped the Cambodian government to constantly sort of stay ahead of a lot of um, its interlocutors in, in the NGO world. But to yeah to come back sort of you know spheres like you know like the union movement had historical links with the Cambodian opposition so the Cambodian government always viewed it as a threat and they you know as soon as they were able to they have not shied away from using violence against union leaders who were threatening to mobilize the Cambodian workforce Buddhism as a sort of legitimating force for the CPP and an important kind of source of symbolic legitimacy has also come under. A lot of attention and you know gradually the government has this is something that the CPP was able to effectively establish itself as the head of um, a reconstituted Buddhist clergy at the end of the Khmer Rouge period but the the, the untak period also did see sort of the revival of the the Tamayut sect of of the Cambodian Sangha which was closely associated with the Cambodian monarchy and so you had figures returning from from exile who were anti-Vietnamese and anti-CPP and sort of took an oppositional stance toward the government and were able to mobilize monks, you know, on several occasions, you know, large protests against the government and so forth. And so gradually as well, you know, there was this sort of, you know, there were several Buddhist leaders were shot dead in the street. There was, you know, this slow kind of wrestling of power away from these, what were always sort of minority factions of, you know, the Cambodian Buddhist order and the attempt to mobilize the monkhood, you know, against the CPP. And so these, you know, it's, each of these has happened in a piecemeal fashion, but gradually, the past three decades have have have, have involved us. The CPP slowly winding back all of the, or reining in all of the forces that kind of burst forth when the United Nations came to Cambodia and sort of flung the country open to the world. And recently, with the backing of the of a uh, rising China, much the CPP government finds itself much less reliant on. Western aid money. Um, part of that is also to do with you know increasing tax revenues and other the the growth of the Cambodian economy. And so Hun Sen is finally in a position to settle old scores with a lot of these forces, and to he no longer has to sort of go through the motions of presenting sort of a facade of reform and good governance and democracy.
0: It's hard to have a lot of sympathy uh, with the politics of the Hun Sen regime, but by comparison with the period before it came to power, it's hard to deny I think that. Cambodia has, rem- has made pretty remarkable economic progress. Uh, you write that in the decade of the, of the 2000s, poverty levels dropped from 50% of the population to 20%, per capita income quadrupled, and Cambodia is close to becoming categorized by the World Bank as a lower middle income country. So, despite, of course, the disparities in income, there, there's a degree of progress there. You call Cambodia's economic management at the time Hun Senomics. Uh, can you describe what you mean by Hun Senomics?
1: well you know it's sort of a marrying of you know free market capitalism with cambodian patronage politics so one of the things that the cpp really does in the 1980s and and this is sort of against the wishes in some senses of the of the, the vietnamese advisors and and officials who were trying to shape the kprp into a sort of clone of the vietnamese communist party and to replicate vietnam's communist political institutions and party institutions in cambodia is that it you know the end of the Khmer Rouge sort of sees a remobilization of sort of traditional patron client relations and this is actually key to Hun Sen's rise as well his ability to mobilize networks of support that are both geographically based and 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 closely connected by marriage and this is the you know one of the things that he's able to that allows him to eclipse some of his rivals within the party and so the reestablishment of these patronage networks by, by the time the UN arrives, you know, there are these networks sort of connect the country from the minister's offices in Phnom Penh all the way out to the village level. And basically what happens with the arrival of UNTAC is sort of one of the three transitions that Cambodia makes is from a sort of planned socialist economy backed, you know, with heavy dollops of Soviet and Vietnamese aid into a sort of free market capitalist economy. So you have a lot of World Bank officials and and another kind of foreign advisors sort of pushing the government to deregulate, to open its markets up and to kind of, to streamline the state down. So, you know, a lot of the very limited sort of social programs that existed under this in the 1980s are kind of canceled. And, you know, the country moves into a period in which there's considerable economic growth, but also that the economic, that economic growth is taking place in a context in which there is a very close relationship between political connections and 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 what opportunities are open to people and so you have these patronage networks existing when the UN comes but once Cambodia is sort of flung open to global markets and sort of reintegrated into the western capitalist economy that the sudden opportunities that creates supercharge these patronage networks and greatly enrich the people that sort of sit at the at the top end of these of these networks and so you see all manner of for instance tourism is a really good example right you have all of a sudden, sort of once Cambodia's civil war comes to an end, you know, the country becomes an attractive tourist destination for a lot of foreigners. You know, it's, it's kind of got this mysterious, dark past. It's got these wonderful monuments left over from the Angkorian period. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very attractive place. for. So, so the country sees sort of this tourist boom. But what you also see is that, you know, the, you know, the ticket concession, the ticketing concession for the Angkor temples is granted to a close crony of Hun Sen who, you know, is able to reap like considerable profit from the control of this. Um, that profit, of course, is part of that profit is directed back to Hun Sen and other leading members of the CPP and goes towards supporting CPP charity work and sort of local infrastructure developments that underpin the CPP's legitimacy. And so, you know, Cambodia's opening to the global economy produces a lot of wealth, but that wealth tends overwhelmingly to be channeled through these personal networks. So Hun Senomics really reflects the yeah, the marrying of patron client relations with a sort of Cambodia's transition to free market capitalism. And I suppose it resembles closely probably transitions and, <clears throat> and hybrids that have arisen in, in other countries as well. But with the, you know, particularly Cambodian twist of sort of. Exactly how patronage operates in Cambodia, you know, and the sort of the model of Hun Sen as sort of a benevolent ruler bestowing gifts upon communes and villages, and senior ministers and other government officials personally bankrolling roads and temples. And all that money is drawn from the, the profits created by Cambodia's interaction with the global economy.
0: In 2009, Cambodia hits the international news headlines because of the trial of a number of members of the Khmer Rouge for genocide and crimes against humanity. You give a fascinating account of the whole process, especially the clash between international standards of law and justice and Cambodian political priorities, and you kind of suggest that the whole thing was pretty much a failure. How so?
1: Well, it's, I mean, first of all, you know, if you you want to assess whether it was successful or not you have to look at what the trials aim to achieve and on that score it's hard to you know it, it's hard to narrow down you know any particular aim because the trials for so many people meant so many things i mean there were there were sort of lawyers who were merely concerned about securing guilty verdicts but along with that came a, you know a narrative about redemption about healing about closure about other people claimed that the trials would help to end Cambodia's culture of impunity. Other people thought that they would create a model for the Cambodian judiciary that would help to sort of introduce higher standards and, and sort of promote judicial reform. And so I, I argue that, given you know that the trials held up against the these immense claims that were made for them, these very high expectations were definitely a failure. But I also argued that there was uh, benefits to the process, and that including sort of. Wrenching open the space for for discussions about the Khmer Rouge period, introducing young Cambodians to what happened at that time, and creating an archive of testimony that will be very valuable for future generations of historians. But I do think you know one of the things about you know I argue in the book that the E Triple C, the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, as it's formally known, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, as most people refer to it, was. It offered many activists an opportunity to sort of reboot the hopes and expectations of the early 1990s of the UN mission. And so you know and, and that's you know that's why it, you know it bore such a heavy weight of expectation. But from the very beginning the, the the question of how the how the Khmer Rouge should be remembered and how senior surviving members should be tried has you know always been a hugely sensitive question For the CPP, it touches on questions of the pasts of some of the senior members of the CPP who many of whom like Hun Sen, were members of the Khmer Rouge who defected some of them very close to the end of the Khmer Rouge era whereas Hun Sen defected to his credit quite a bit earlier you know and it and it also sort of because the the Khmer Rouge you know and the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge has been so central to the CPP's legacy it's very important for the party to ensure that it's the way that the trials unfolded wouldn't open up space for its opponents to sort of um, manipulate the trials or use them to sort of embarrass the CPP or undermine its its founding myths so From the very beginning, Hun Sen is willing to tolerate trials because he sees a certain benefit in it, in terms of his relationship with the international community. But his view is always that we're going to try X number of people, these people, and then that's going to be it. Whereas the the United Nations, which is sort of a co-party to the court, a lot of UN legal experts were were arguing that this should be a legal process, an open-ended legal process that through argumentation, through the presentation of evidence we'll narrow down who should be who should be tried what the jurisdiction of the court should be and you know this disagreement this clash has unfolded through the life of the court and it's yeah i mean it, it's it's been you know I, as I said I think there have been benefits to the trials um, and I think it, I think it's unfair to deny that but I also think that given the expectations that were heaped upon it which were similarly transformational to a lot of the expectations that were heaped on the UN mission at the start of the 1990s the reality has fallen very far short but i think that simply reflects i don't think that's so much to do with the the efforts or lack of efforts of the the individuals who've who've promoted the court and who've worked within it i think it just simply reflects the the political realities in cambodia and the fact that the khmer rouge remains a very live political question and there's a lot of people in cambodia with a great deal of investment in how that story is told how that history is remembered and how the trials should
0: unfold. The Khmer Rouge Tribunal kind of marks the end of the era of Western influence in Cambodia, and towards the end of the book, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, you develop a new theme, the rise of Chinese influence. How significant really is Chinese economic and strategic influence in Cambodia?
1: Well, over the past decade, China's grown to become Cambodia's leading source of investment, its number one trade partner, its number one source of tourists. What's been visible in in Cambodia over the past sort of five or six years is the the widespread presence of Chinese expatriates and businesses. When I was living there, when expats and and immigrants and workers from China began coming to Cambodia in more significant numbers, a lot of them were were sort of cluster around the old Chinatowns in central Phnom Penh, so around um, along Monivong Boulevard or around the central market. And this is sort of the kind of the core of the of the city's sino-khmer commercial elite. But what we've seen in the past in more recent times is that firstly the sort of the advent of large-scale Chinese infrastructure projects constructed under the aegis of the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, roads, bridges, power plants, so forth. But also, you know, the 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 human presence has been remarkable. I mean the areas of Phnom Penh that that were never, you know, that you didn't traditionally see, you know, sort of mainland Chinese come to have now they now play host to Chinese restaurants and other businesses. And I think it's, you know, China's Played an important role in Cambodia's political trajectory over the past ten years, which is that it's given Hun Sen an alternative form of international patronage, and in doing so, it's it's, it's allowed him to sort of fully abrogate the political settlement that, of, of 1991 that created the UN mission and that put Cambodia on the path towards liberal democracy. And you know, it's it, it's given him he now has the freedom essentially to ignore Western blandishments um, and and admonitions about democratic values and human rights in a way that he wasn't in the 1990s when he was, you know, his government was heavily reliant on Western aid money. And so, you know, it's played a, a very important role. And of course, as Hun Sen has gotten closer to China and also engineered this sort of authoritarian turn or this reversion or this stripping of the facade, I suppose, of Cambodian democracy, He's being seen in the West, you know, increasingly in adversarial terms as well. So the US government has been targeting Cambodia recently. They do it under the banner of human rights, of course, but the fact that he's become so close with China is the thing that's really putting momentum behind this push. So there've been sanctions against leading Cambodian officials and cronies of Hun Sen. There's... Being Cambodia, there's an arms embargo against Cambodia that was instituted last month. There's all sorts of measures that the the government has taken. They might be on the verge of reviewing Cambodia's GSP status, which could threaten its access to the U.S. market. And of course, the U.S. is Cambodia's number one export market. So right now, Cambodia finds itself sort of in at the convergence of sort of the hard power and ideological streams of U.S.-China competition. And it's I, I argue in the book, or right, I you know I kind of imply that you know really this this has its roots you know, in the decisions that were made in the early 1990s. I think that Westerners in the early 1990s went from seeing Cambodia as sort of this tragic country to a country that was the subject of sort of there was a sort of redemption story about Cambodia's transition from the end of the Cold War into the 1990s and, and you know, the coming of democracy at the, and, and the, the coming together of the so-called international community to sort of usher Cambodia towards this sunlit upland of, of, of freedom. And I think that perceptions in the United States have remained particularly strong in that sense. Cambodia is a small and relatively unimportant country in strategic terms. And so since the 1990s, that's allowed policy on Cambodia to be dictated largely by Congress. Certain congressmen have been representing Cambodian American communities have have taken a very strong line against Hun Sen. And of course, by human rights groups who also have see Cambodia as one country where Western leverage could have some, some impact on the human rights situation. And so what's unfolded is sort of a dynamic of mistrust. And I think that Cambodia's or Hun Sen's embrace of Chinese largesse was probably overdetermined, given the extent to which Cambodia was treated as a, a special case, I suppose you would say, for democracy building. While the US government was, it would be much more muted in its reaction to human rights violations in Thailand, or increasingly, as we've seen over the past decade in Vietnam, Cambodia was always a place where, where a lot of American officials thought they could safely stand on principle, that it wouldn't endanger any core American interests. But now we've sort of, you know, and as Hun Sen has has tacked towards China in order to sort of guard against Western democracy promotion efforts, relations with China between China and the US have soured, and all of a sudden Hun Sen finds himself in a position where he's anathematized because he's close to China and also because he's his various authoritarian inclinations and recent crackdowns, and so it's a pretty worrying dynamic, and it, you know, I, I, I'm concerned that Cambodia now finds itself. Between the mortar and pestle of the great powers, and and this is sort of the position the country found itself in in the 1960s and 70s. And while I don't think conflict between China and the U.S. Is, is is imminent, I do think it is telling that Cambodia is once again the place where once again a place where these this great power competition is is expressing itself.
0: Sadly, we're almost out of time, but we always like to ask interviewees at the end whether they are working on a new project and what that project is.
1: Well, actually, not for the moment. I've sort of writing a book is a hugely involved process, and you know, I, I just I, I think I need another year or two before deciding to throw myself back into that. I'm really enjoying my work at the Diplomat. I mean, it's it's enabled me to remain in touch with Southeast Asian affairs while you know, after having moved back home to Australia, um, and I really appreciate being able to do that and to, to be kind of writing, be back kind of in the news cycle, following events day by day. But you know, in the longer term, I do hope to to write more books. I'm not exact I don't have any current ideas, but I'm sure at some point inspiration will strike and I will um you know throw myself back into it.
0: Sebastian Strangio, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Cambodia from Pol Pot to Hun Sen and Beyond published in the paperback edition, uh, updated and revised version in 2020 by Yale University Press.
1: Thanks, Patrick. I really enjoyed it.
0: And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with the modern history of Cambodia, like Astrid Noren Nilsson's Cambodia's Second Kingdom, Nation, Imagination and Democracy, Published by Cornell Southeast Asia Programme in 2016, or Solpal is A Dependence in Cambodia How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy, published by Columbia University Press in 2013. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.